You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Cities Church, great to be with you. This morning we've come to the the last psalm that we're going to cover this summer in our Summer of Psalms. And I would like to start by telling you a little bit about a man I was very close to in my young adult years. In my late teen years and early 20s, there was a man... Uh, in his early 50s by the name of Lenny at our church, and he really served as a mentor to me in a lot of ways. Uh, my dad was not a believer, and I didn't have a good relationship with him, and so Lenny was a, a sort of like a, a second father to me in a lot of ways. And in his early 50s, he got prostate cancer, and it got really bad really fast. <clears throat> um, so we prayed, many of us, we prayed, and he recovered. And one of the doctors said, it was miraculous. They didn't understand how he was able to turn around the way he did so quickly. Lenny lived several more years. In his mid-50s, he got prostate cancer again. Um, And this time, it looked even worse. It was bleak. And again, we prayed. And again, he recovered in a way that more than one doctor said that was miraculous. We don't understand how he recovered the way he did. Praise God. It was awesome. Over the next several years, uh, Lenny had three daughters. All three of his daughters got married and started to have children. And so he and his wife had the chance to watch some of their grandchildren be born. It was awesome. And Lenny sort of felt like he had a new uh, outlook on life and decided he was going to use, he was going to retire a little early and use his time to invest in his grandchildren and in the young adults of our, of our church. He said, I want to spend a lot of time investing in the next generation. Unfortunately, not too long after that, he got prostate cancer for a third time. And again, we prayed. And we prayed with great confidence because twice we had prayed and seen God intervene miraculously. Unfortunately, at the age of 62, Lenny died of prostate cancer. Um, I remember thinking, God, this is not the way the story's supposed to go. Like, this is, not, this is not the script I wanted to unfold. That was, that was my frustration And I remember crying and being upset and protesting, God, why didn't you come through a third time? Wouldn't that have been awesome to give Lenny a few more years for more doctors to see the miraculous hand of God? That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Uh, Several years later, one of Lenny's daughters, who's currently in her mid-30s, her husband, who's also in his mid-30s, was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig disease. It's about two years ago, and um, it's gotten bad fast. And unless God intervenes supernaturally, miraculously, very soon, um, he will die from ALS in his mid-30s. And my friend in her mid-30s will be a widow with three young children. Sometimes I think about these sort of moments, and I think to myself, God, that's not the way I think it's supposed to go down. And it makes it hard to grapple with these moments in our lives. Now, maybe some of you, like you understand these things and you, just, you feel like you just trust God 100% every moment. That's awesome. I'm just telling you, that's not me. I struggle, I grapple, I wrestle with these things and not understanding why God does some of the things that he does. For some of you, <clears throat> the story is different but similar in ways that you are disappointed with how the script has unfolded in your life. For some of you, 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 you say to yourself, I, I, I never imagined I would still be unmarried at this current age. 
I remember saying that to myself. I didn't get married till I was 38. And I remember saying to myself, I, can't, I, I just I never imagined this is how God's script for me would unfold. For some of you, uh, you, you may be married and you say, I just can't imagine. I never imagined that we would not have kids by now. And every visit to the fertility doctor just feels like a waste of time and energy. For some of you, you never imagined having gone through a divorce being betrayed by a spouse. You never imagined that would be your story. For some of you, you never imagined that, that your marriage would be so hard. You never imagined that maybe you would be estranged from your family. You, you never imagined that you would have a wayward child. For most of us, we face these difficulties, and we just never, we never could have imagined that's the road that God would take us down. And so often in these moments, we ask God to intervene. We say, God, would you please intervene? And sometimes, if I'm honest, sometimes it just feels like he's not listening. That's what it feels like sometimes. That's the sentiment we get here in Psalm 44. The sentiment in Psalm 44 is, God, there's a lot of bad stuff happening. Are you even listening? Psalm 44, like, the other, like several of the other psalms we've looked at this summer, is a lament psalm. But it's not just a lament psalm. Psalm 44 actually is also a protest psalm. It, it laments the situation, and then the author of Psalm 44 is protesting against God. Why have you not intervened in the way that I ask? I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, we love you. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for making a way for us to be saved. And God, as we face moments of difficulty in this life, we face hardship and suffering. It's hard to grapple with. It's hard to understand. Lord, I pray you would give us grace. Not necessarily to understand because there's no way for our human minds to understand all the ways of God. But give us grace to endure well. And I pray as we examine Psalm 44 this morning that you would use it as a means of sanctification in all of us. May we leave this building this morning more equipped to honor you and suffer well. I pray that for all of us in Christ's name. Amen. Let's dive in. Look at Psalm 44, the first three verses with me. He says, Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what the deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. So the author of Psalm 44 is starting off by praising God. He's acknowledging that God's got a really good resume of doing great stuff for his own people. And this has been passed down to them. He's like, we've heard our, our parents, they told us about the things you did back then. Our grandparents told us. The, the, the older people in our family, they passed down all the things that you had done in previous generations. And, and here he's specifically alluding to the fact that God rescued the Jewish people from Egyptian tyranny and brought them into the land of Canaan. Most of us are familiar with the story. We've read the book of Exodus or we've seen the movie Prince of Egypt. Right? It's relatively accurate. <laughs> right? God, God brought them out of Egypt and rescues them and brings them eventually into the land of Canaan. But the land of Canaan was occupied 
They were tenants there. They were pagan peoples living there, and God drives them out. And the psalmist here says, listen, that wasn't them. It wasn't because they're great uh, strategic leadership or their military prowess. No, the reason why those guys were driven out is because God drove them out. He says, that, he, says there's a, and he says there that God afflicted those Gentile peoples living in the land. He afflicted them, but he planted the Jewish people living there. So he drives them out, afflicts them, brings his people into the land, and gives them the land. Look at verse 3. He says this. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. It was God that drove out the peoples of the land and gave that land to the Jewish people. He continues in verse 4. Then he says this, you are my king, O God. We see a, a, a shift in the tense. It goes from what we've heard you've done to now what I happen to know. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Verse 5, <clears throat> through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in the bow do I trust, not, excuse me, not in the bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks for, to your name forever. He's saying, listen, we, we've heard of all the things you've done and here's what I know to be true. We don't trust in our swords or our equipment or our tools it's you. You are the reason why we can push back our foes. We've seen you do it, God. We, you've got a, rem a remarkable track record. You've got a resume of saving us with your strong arm protecting us. In verse 4, right, he says, you are my king. In verse 5, he says, we push down our foes. In verse 8, he says, in God, we have continually boasted. There's this shift in language then he continues in verse 9. He says this. This is where the lamenting really begins. You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. He's implying there's some disastrous situation happening right now. There's some significant pain happening. God, you used to be with us, and you used to lead us, and we pushed back our foes, but now the foe's at our doorstep, and they're taking the land, and they're plundering us. In a previous generation, you, you were so strong with that arm, God. You guided us, but, but now you've rejected us, he says in verse 9. In verse 10, he says, the enemies, they've gotten the spoils of this war God, you've allowed the people, these Gentiles, the pagans, to plunder our land, and you've done nothing about it, God. Why would you do that? In verse 11, he says that, that we are like sheep for slaughter. It's an important metaphor. And he uses that same metaphor again later in the psalm, and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, touch on that for just a moment, so we'll come back to that. In essence, what this psalm, psalmist is saying is this. God... You could have easily come through for us here. You could have done it. You've done it in the past. We've heard about it. We've seen it. You could have done something right now. But for one reason or another, Lord, you've rejected us this time. This time you didn't come through, 
the way we wanted, and I don't know why. Look at verse 12. He says this, you have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. He's saying, God, you sold us out, man, and not even for a high price. You hung us out to dry, and it wasn't like you got a lot of money in return. There doesn't seem to be any benefit for you to leave us hanging like that, God. Why would you do that? Why would you not come in? Why would you not, why would you not uh, rescue us? Right? You can sense the confusion, the despair, the anger in, in the voice of the author of Psalm 44. Have you ever felt these emotions in your life? I know I have. I have felt some very similar emotions in my life through moments of disappointment and hurt and pain. He continues, look at verse 13 with me. He says, you have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock amongst the people. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. I'm going to read those same verses again in a different English translation. Just want to make sure we, we get the sentiment here. Another English translation renders it this way. It says, you let our neighbors mock us. We are an object of scorn to those around us. You have made us the butt of their jokes. They shake their heads at us in scorn. We can't even escape this constant humiliation. The shame is written across our faces. All, all we hear all day are the taunts of our mockers. All we see are our vengeful enemies. The author of Psalm 44 is like, what are you doing, God? They're mocking us. They're making fun of us everywhere we go. And by the way, they're mocking you too because we represent you. God, even if you don't want to rescue us, wouldn't you want to rescue your own name? They're making fun of you because we're you. We represent you. Why would you do this, God? And then in verse 17, the, the protest really begins. We, we go from this praising to this lament to now a real protest. Verse 17, it says this, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? He's basically saying, you know the worst part about this God? We actually were living for you. We were living righteously. We were faithful to you. We were faithful to the covenant. We weren't sinning. We weren't breaking the rules. We weren't betraying you. We were actually doing the righteous things, and you still didn't come through for us. He said, listen, I, I would understand, in verse 20, the, the implications. He said, I would understand if we had forgotten the name of God. Like, that would make sense that you would, that you would not come through for us if we had done that. If we had reached out to worship other gods, okay, Totally makes sense that you would let, let us suffer. But we didn't do that. Have you ever felt this way? I felt this way last night at about 8.30. I was scheduled to go on a date with my wife to Cheesecake Factory. So it's become our new spot. <clears throat> and um, I had done my, my sermon manuscript was complete. And my hard drive crashed last night. 
and I had not saved or emailed my manuscript to myself yet, so I lost the manuscript. <clears throat> so I sat for about 10 seconds, really angry, in silence. And the thought that went my mind was, really, God? I'm preparing a sermon here. Come on. Like, if there's anything, you couldn't have waited 10 seconds for me to email it to myself, and then the crash, and then I just figure it out the next day? Really, God? I'm the servant of the Most High God here, preparing a sermon for the people of God. Really? This is, what, this is how you repay me? For about 10 seconds, that was my emotions. And then I paused, and I thought to myself, how arrogant. How dare you protest the God, Kenny? <clears throat> so I repented, and I went upstairs, and I said to my wife, I said, uh, I just lost my manuscript. My hard drive just crashed. Um, and she graciously said to me, well, do you not want to go out tonight? Like, maybe you just work on this. And I said, no, no, we, we got date night. Cheesecake Factory is calling. Let's go. So we went to Cheesecake Factory, and then we hung out. And about at a little bit after midnight, I sat at my computer and retyped my manuscript. It took me a couple hours, and um, I was really frustrated. And I'm just getting God, as I'm typing this, I'm going, Lord, I... I think, I think I understand a little bit of what the, the psalmist here is talking about. I'll just, um, if we had forgotten your name, it would make sense. He's sort of saying, God, we weren't disobedient. We were trying to serve you, and you still let the bad thing happen. Why? Why, man? It doesn't make sense. Why would you do this? Meanwhile, there's a bunch of bad people plundering the land, and you don't hold them accountable. Why would you do that, man? That's what he's saying here. There are these pagan people testing you, defying you. Here I am serving you. Why won't you rescue me? Look <clears> at <throat> verse 22. He repeats the language from verse 11. He says, yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Another English translation, the CSB, renders that same verse this way. It says, because of you... We are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. This, it's very clear. The psalmist is saying, God, God, you're the one that's done this. This isn't the devil doing this. You are the one that's handed us over to be slaughtered. Why would you do that? God, we've obeyed you. We've loved you. We've served you. And you just treated us like sheep to be butchered. God, you've handed us over to be slaughtered. Why would you do that? We're on the chopping block, headed to be killed, and you're doing nothing. This is a serious lament. There's anguish, right? He's saying, God, we're about to be slaughtered, and you're doing nothing. Where are you? And then he prays in verse 23. He says, awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. God, wake up. Why are you sleeping on the job? You've been rejecting us. Please, would you not reject us forever? Don't let this rejection continue. Please, oh God. And then the last line, verse 26, he says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. He's saying, God, you love us, right? We know you love us. You've told us. 
You've shown it in the past. Would you come through for us this time? Would you rescue us? In fact, the fact that we know God loves us is what makes this confusing. Because if God didn't love us, it would make perfect sense why he lets us suffer. That makes perfect sense, actually. You don't, why is this happening to me? Because you don't love me. It makes sense. I can understand that. What's hard to understand is knowing that he loves me, and yet he allows the pain into my life. He hands me over like a sheep to be slaughtered. As we look through the Old and New Testaments, we, we see various narratives that I think kind of help us understand this a little bit better. Um, there are several instances in the Scripture that I think we could examine that could help us understand this sentiment a little better. But I want to examine one we've actually already examined a few months ago on Easter Sunday, Pastor Joe preached from John chapter 11, and we looked at the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus. I want to I revisit that moment in Scripture this morning briefly. Recap of the story is this. Jesus is traveling. He's teaching. He's doing ministry with his disciples. He gets word that Lazarus is sick and dying, and he's asked to come to heal him. And Jesus intentionally delays traveling back to heal his friend Lazarus. He purposely delays because he knows it will ensure that Lazarus will die from this illness. So that when Jesus arrives, he will have been dead for four days. Jesus intentionally did something that would lead them into a situation that was very painful for them. Jesus did it intentionally. He could have spared them this painful moment. He could have, but he didn't. Because he knew something they did not know, right? Oh, Jesus was about to intervene. He was going to intervene, but he was gonna do it in a very different way than they imagined. So from Mary and Martha's perspective, all they know is, Lazarus is sick, he's dying, you need to get here before he's dead. And Jesus intentionally waits so that he dies, and they don't understand it. It's confusing to them. Because you love us, don't you, Jesus? I mean, if you didn't love us, it wouldn't be confusing. But you do love us, so you intentionally waited? I don't understand that. But that's because they don't know what Jesus is about to do. And the same is true for us. Oftentimes, we face painful situations. We beg God to intervene, and he does not. And we go, why? It's because we can't see what he can see. And he loves us so much that he wants to ensure that we experience that grander plan that he can see that we cannot. So he loves us so much that he guides us into painful situations to ensure his grander plan can be unfolded. Mary and Martha, they're confused by this. And, and they're talking in a way that's very similar to the sentiments we see in Psalm 44. God, we know you're powerful. If you had just been here in time, you could have healed him. Back, on, back in Easter, in that sermon, Pastor Joe highlighted this confusion. The confusion that we face when we are facing hardships. All of us face this, right? We know that God could protect us from an unjust boss or a manipulative coworker, but sometimes he doesn't. God could have protected us or stopped the accident, but didn't. God could heal infertility or push back a tyrannical regime of a failed state 
He could change the hearts of a wayward child. He could stop the miscarriages. He could reconcile the broken relationships. He could stop the earthquakes in a nation that desperately needs revitalization. God could heal cancer. He could stop chronic pain. He could deliver us from depression. He could do all of these things. And we know he loves us. And yet he doesn't. He doesn't fix all these things. That's hard for us. Suffering comes, and we often wonder why. Like the author of Psalm 44, he's basically saying, God, we've been faithful to you. Will you wake up? Will you redeem us? Will you rescue us? But the scriptures make clear to us that God has a bigger plan than just intervening in all of our short-term problems. As real as they are, and as painful as they are, God has a grander plan at work. We have to wait, and we have to suffer, and that's really, really hard for us to do. I know it's hard for me. And Jesus does it because he loves us. Because he loves us. Jesus loved Mary and Martha so much, he did not want to short-circuit the grander plan that would happen in a few days. He didn't want to give them the short-term a petition because he had a grander thing he had his eyes on. Jesus loved them so much, he was willing to make a choice for their long-term good, even though it meant pain in the short term. When Jesus arrives on the scene, when Mary and Martha are there, we learn that Jesus weeps with them. He cries with them because he sees their pain, and he's filled with compassion. The same is true for us. God loves us. He loves us so much that he will intentionally lead us into painful situations because he knows they are good for us in the long term. In the meantime, he'll cry with us. He'll comfort us. He'll give us the grace that we need. He'll listen to our laments and complaints and our protests. No matter how arrogant they are, he still listens to us. And eventually... The, the grander plan is unfolded. We'll look back at verse 22. This is kind of the key verse in Psalm 44. It says, Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. As we're reading through Psalm 44, he's asking this question God, why are you not? You say you love us, right? The natural implication, the natural question that is often going to be asked is, well, maybe God doesn't really love us. That's the question that could arise in this moment. We're facing difficult things. God said he loves us, but maybe he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't really love us. The Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 44 in the book of Romans to make clear to us that God does love us. In Romans chapter 8, one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible, In the final section of chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is talking about our future glory. There's this future glory for us as as believers. And he comes to the section where he's reminding the believers that no matter what they face, they can be confident in God's love. In verse 35 of Romans 8, he poses this question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? Can any of these things separate us from the love of God? And he doesn't answer the question immediately. He lets it linger for a moment. 
And instead of answering the question, he actually quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22, where it says, they're like sheep to be slaughtered. Paul recognizes that the temptation when we face tribulation in his life is to question whether or not God loves us. So he's saying, listen, is, is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ? All these bad things, can they separate us? Hey, remember Psalm 44, as it is written, we are like sheep that are to be slaughtered. Hey, if you're feeling that way, you're not the first person in history to feel that way. The psalmist felt that way hundreds of years ago. And the psalmist begs this question. He implies this question that if bad things are happening to us, is it because God has stopped loving us? And Paul emphatically answers the question in verse 37. The answer is no. No. God has not stopped loving us. Verse 37 of Romans 8 says this. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. City's church, Jesus loved the author of Psalm 44. And he loved Mary, and he loved Martha, and he loves you. And sometimes in this life, you're going to face very, very difficult situations. And you're going to feel all the emotions that we read in Psalm 44. And you're going to go, God, where are you? What, why have you done this? Do you even still love me will be the next question many of us ask. And the Apostle Paul directly addresses that. And he says, oh yes, God still loves you. Absolutely, City Church. We are like sheep headed for the slaughter, but God still loves us. In the moments, in the moments where we are tempted to believe that God does not love us because of the chaos all around, the Apostle Paul's words Shout to us, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in this life will ever separate you from the love of God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the Psalms that put words to the emotions that many of us feel. Thank you. God, I thank you for the Holy Scriptures that give us insights and instructions to know how to grapple with the emotions that many of us feel. I'm so thankful that I'm not left to guessing how to handle these feelings and emotions, but your word gives us insights and wisdom and instruction. God, I'm so thankful for the Apostle Paul's reminder that your love is strong and fierce. Your love is set on your elect and that there is nothing that can separate us from that. God, we don't understand your ways. We often want you to intervene in a particular fashion that is different than what you think is best. God, forgive us in the moments where we don't trust you and help us to trust you more. God, help us to trust and know that your ways are better than our ways. Help us to choose to trust you every minute of every day because we know that you know what's best. God, we ask for the grace to love you well and to suffer well no matter what we face 
Help us to honor you in all we do, no matter what suffering may come our way. Help us to represent you well, because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.